The following episode contains graphic details of a violent crime and may not be suitable for all listeners. If you have had suicidal thoughts or suffer from PTSD, this episode may not be for you. If you find the things you hear become a trigger for you, please contact your nearest crisis center or National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Murder at Land Between the Lakes. Today, we're going to bring to you the story of Hugh Allen Heflin versus Stewart County, Tennessee, and the lawsuit that ensued. I'm going to tell you a story based off of an article that we have found online. We'll actually post the full article on our Facebook page so you guys can come check it out and check out the details after the episode. But I'm going to start today to tell you a little bit about this story. The family of Hugh Allen Heflin, who was a 20-year-old pre-trial detainee who committed suicide in the Stewart County, Tennessee jail, sued the county, the sheriff, one deputy, and the jailer for acting with deliberate indifference to Heflin's medical needs after he was discovered hanging in his cell. A jury awarded damages to the plaintiffs and the defendant's appeal. On the appeal, the defendants contended that the evidence was insufficient for the submission of two issues to the jury. One, whether any act or failure to act of the defendants was the proximate cause of the inmate's death. And two, whether any defendant acted with deliberate indifference to the inmate's medical needs after he was discovered hanging in a cell. The individual defendants also argue that they were entitled to judgment on the basis of qualified immunity. So Hugh Allen Heflin, unmarried, a lifelong resident of Stewart County, was arrested pursuant to a capious warrant on September 3rd of 1987. Heflin apparently had an alcohol problem and had been arrested on earlier occasions. On June 8th, 1987, Tennessee State Trooper John Smothers had arrested Heflin on a misdemeanor charge and lodged him in the Stewart County Jail. While there, Heflin was involved in some sort of altercation in which he was injured. He filed a complaint with the FBI charging that Smothers and Deputy Sheriff Anderson had beaten him. The FBI had begun an investigation at the time of the September 3rd arrest, but had not yet interviewed Heflin. An agent had interviewed Stewart County Sheriff Hicks, a defendant in this action, and Hicks had stated that Heflin's injuries were self-inflicted. Jailer Luffman saw Heflin writing at a desk in a cell at approximately 11.30 a.m. on September 3rd. At about 11.45 a.m., Inmate Richardson, who was a jail trustee, noticed that the shower in Heflin's cell was running. Some 15 minutes later, at about noon, another inmate, Austin, informed Deputy Sheriff Crutcher that the shower in Heflin's cell had been running for a long time, probably around 15 minutes. Austin had called to Heflin, but received no response. 
Deputy Crutcher went to Heflin's cell and saw a sheet tied to the cell bars. He immediately went to the dispatcher's office for keys, returned and opened Heflin's cell. While in the office, Crutcher directed Jailer Luffman and the dispatcher to call Sheriff Hicks and the emergency ambulance service. Luffman's report showed this call at 12.06 p.m. When Crutcher entered the cell, he saw Heflin hanging by the neck on the far side of the shower stall. Heflin's hands and feet were tied together. A rag was stuffed in his mouth, and his feet were touching the floor. Inmate Austin followed the deputy into the cell. Crutcher told him to leave. With the body still hanging, Crutcher checked for a pulse and signs of respiration, but found none, and the body was still warm. He also opened Heflin's eyes and found his pupils were dilated. So from these observations, Crutcher concluded that Heflin was dead. While Crutcher was still alone in the cell with the hanging body, inmate trustee Richardson, who had heard of the hanging upon returning from an errand, came in with a knife that he had picked up in the kitchen. Rather than using that knife, with Richardson's assistance to cut Heflin's body down, Crutcher ordered Richardson out of the cell. The evidence is conflicting as to whether the emergency medical team or Sheriff Hicks arrived next. At any rate, neither the sheriff nor an EMT member supported Heflin's body or cut it down. EMT members Hollis testified that he examined the body for vital signs and found none. Hollis stated that he believed Heflin had been hanging for at least 20 minutes before he arrived. Dr. Robert Lee, the county medical examiner and the only physician practicing in Stewart County, arrived at the jail at approximately 12.12 p.m. Dr. Lee examined the still-hanging body, then ordered the staff to cut it down and place it on a cot. Sheriff Hicks directed a deputy to take pictures of the hanging body before it was taken down. Dr. Lee examined the body in a prone position, then directed the EMT members to remove Heflin to his office for an electrocardiogram. Dr. Lee stated on the death certificate that the time of death was 12.30 p.m. and the cause was strangulation. There is no dispute about the cause of death. The defendants contend that there was no evidence that their action or inaction was the proximate cause of Heflin's death. They argue that Heflin was dead when Crutcher discovered him hanging, and for this reason, they were entitled to a directed verdict. The plaintiffs, on the other hand, point to several items of evidence that they contend created a jury issue on proximate cause. In his report of the incident, Deputy Crutcher wrote that Dr. Lee believed he had heard a heartbeat upon his initial examination of the hanging body. The report stated, at 12.12 p.m., Dr. Robert Lee arrived at the Sheriff's Department. After checking Mr. Heflin, he thought he heard a heartbeat. He advised us to cut Mr. Heflin down. At trial, when asked by the plaintiff's lawyer if Dr. Lee actually made such a comment, Crutcher answered, yes, sir, that's what he said. In addition, a jail inmate named Thompson testified that he could only hear bits and pieces of the conversation in Heflin's cell. It was his recollection, however, that Dr. Lee said he thought Heflin had a pulse, but he didn't. 
EMT member Hollis testified that Dr. Lee directed the EMTs to get him down quick to my office where I can run an EKG on him. He also stated that Dr. Lee said there'll probably be a hell of a lawsuit over this. Dr. Lee testified that when he arrived at the jail, he examined Heflin's chest with a stethoscope, but was unable to hear anything because there was a lot of talking and noise in the background. After quieting the onlookers, Dr. Lee examined Heflin again and found no vital signs. He testified that after the body was cut down and put on a cot, he never heard a heartbeat or saw any evidence of life. According to Dr. Lee, it would be more difficult to check the vital signs of a body hanging by the neck than one laid out flat on the floor. The plaintiff's witness, Dr. Richard Treat, testified as a medical expert. The defendants did not challenge his qualifications. Dr. Treat testified that even if no heartbeat or respiration was detected, when Deputy Crutcher found Heflin hanging, there was up to a 10% chance that Heflin could be resuscitated if he had been cut down and these efforts had been commenced immediately. The witness explained that if it appeared from photographs that Heflin's airway obstruction was about 85% rather than a total, a person could still survive for somewhere between 20 minutes and an hour with such an obstruction. When asked to resume that, Dr. Lee heard a heartbeat eight minutes after initial discovery of the body by Deputy Crutcher, Dr. Treat testified that in such a case, then resuscitative efforts initiated eight minutes previously should have virtually confirmed survival's successful outcome. The chance for a young, healthy person surviving under these conditions would be certainly above 95%. Dr. Treat testified that hanging creates a high-grade obstruction, but that strangulation by hanging takes a long time, 20, 30, 40 minutes, to be actually die by partial strangulation. The defendants concentrate on Dr. Treat's up to 10% evaluation of the likelihood of resuscitation, while the plaintiffs emphasize his evaluation of certainly above 95%. No one ever attempted to resuscitate Heflin. Both Crutcher and Hicks were trained in CPR. Deputy Crutcher could have called on Jailer Luffman and trustees Austin and Richardson to assist in supporting the body and cutting it down. Instead, he sent Luffman back to the office and ordered Austin and Richardson out of the cell, even though Richardson came with a knife that could have been used to cut the bedsheets. Crutcher was not trained to determine whether a person was dead or alive. EMT member Hollis testified that he and the other team member did nothing with respect to Heflin's body because county police, in the absence of vital signs, was, we don't do nothing until the proper authority says do something. It was stipulated that Sheriff Hicks is the policymaker regarding the Sheriff's Department and the county jail. Sheriff Hicks was present either at the time the EMT arrived or came immediately after them. Yet, he ordered no one to attempt to revive Heflin or even to cut him down for resuscitation efforts. Dr. Lee was never asked if he made the comment about hearing a heartbeat as recorded by Dr or by Deputy Crutcher in his incident report, and verified from the witness stand. He testified that he could not hear because of the noise in the area and that he asked the onlookers to be quiet. 
He stated that after the body had been cut down and laid on a cot, he detected no signs of life. Nevertheless, he directed EMT Hollis to get Heflin to his office quick so he could administer an EKG. And, according to Hollis, Dr. Lee remarked that there would be a lawsuit over the incident. From this evidence, the jury could reasonably infer that Dr. Lee believed, after he arrived, that there was a possibility that Eflin was still alive. The jury could further accept Dr. Treat's uncontradicted testimony that if there was a heartbeat, resuscitation efforts undertaken immediately would have carried at least a 95% chance of success, that is, of survival. Dr. Treat also testified that a person who is revived after partial strangulation for a period of 20 minutes or so would likely suffer no severe brain damage. He could be expected to have moderate to good functional capacity following successful resuscitation. Both Sheriff Hicks and Deputy Crutcher testified that in their opinion, a reasonably competent officer would have believed Heflin was dead when he was first discovered. This being so, they argue their failure to attempt to revive Heflin provides no evidence of deliberate indifference to the inmate's serious medical needs. They point out that everyone who checked Heflin for vital signs, including Dr. Lee, thought he was dead. Both denied harboring any ill will towards Heflin and testified that they treated the situation in his cell as the scene of a crime. Thus, they did not disturb any object in the cell, including the hanging body. Both defendants denied ever having been instructed or advised that CPR should be administered to a person found hanging, even if no vital signs are detected. Even if they were wrong in assuming that Heflin was dead and that no attempt to revive him was indicated, the defendants assert that this would demonstrate nothing more than an error of judgment in a stressful situation, not deliberate indifference or conduct that shocks the conscience. The plaintiffs respond that there is an abundance of evidence from which the jury could conclude that the defendants acted with deliberate indifference. The FBI investigation of Heflin's complaint was still open. Hicks had been questioned about the incident, and Crutcher knew about the complaint. Moreover, a parole officer who came to the jail with Sheriff Hicks testified that five or six minutes after he and Hicks arrived, the witness went to his cell with State Trooper Smothers, one of the persons named in Heflin's complaint. The parole officer stated that no one else was in the cell that Heflin was still hanging. Trooper Smothers shined his light on Heflin's face, and then the two of them left. The witness could not tell whether Heflin was dead or alive. The FBI notified Trooper Smothers several weeks later that the investigation of Heflin's complaint had been closed. Hi, Rue. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. Thank you for having me on. No, thank you so much for joining us. Um, It's really a pleasure having you here. And for all of our listeners, um, Rue Heflin is the sister of Hugh Allen Heflin, who passed away in 1987. Uh, So Rue's going to talk with us a little bit about sort of the life and death of her brother. So Rue, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about growing up with Hugh and what was he like as a big brother? Oh, my goodness. Um, Where to start? Um, She was about five years older than me, so he was my big brother in every sense of the word. Um, I thought he was the coolest person ever back then. Um, Mm -hmm. I looked up to him for pretty much everything. Uh, Tasting music, 
social cues, all of it. I just thought he hung the moon and the stars around it. So um, he was extremely protective of me growing up, not just because I was a little sister, but also because I was born with a disability. And so anybody that picked on me, messed with me at all, they had Hugh Allen to deal with. And so, oh, yeah. To this day, <laughs> I miss that very much. Um, sure. Did... um. So we've heard a bunch about, we've heard a lot about Hugh Allen and, you know, he had a lot of friendships and, you know, he was good to everyone. You know, it seemed like everybody seemed to like him. Yes. I can remember uh, hearing stories from several of the elderly members of our community where they would tell me he would be driving by and see them mowing their yard or out pulling weeds and he would stop um, and get out and finish their work for them without even expecting anything for it. He just hated to see an older person out working like that. And that's the kind uh, of person he was. He was a very giving, um, very caring person. Yeah. Yeah, that's really nice. And, you know, we, like I said, we talked to a couple of his friends and they said the same thing. He was a cut up and they just loved being around him. And he was the life of a party. Yeah. Um, Had a razor sharp wit. He was yeah. extremely funny. Well, he was really smart as well, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, very intelligent, yeah. well-spoken, polite. And I don't think there's anybody that didn't know him and didn't like him. I mean, he made friends so easily and had the biggest circle of friends I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and speaking of friends, do you, do you recall if you knew Carla and Vicki? Yes. Um, I know he went to school uh, with one of them and the uh, other was, I think, a year behind them. Okay. So, mm-hmm. um, I know he knew one of them really well, but I, I believe he knew both of them. Uh, socially right and do you recall like what his thoughts were when the girls went missing uh, I can't really say what his thoughts were were I know the day that they went missing I got home from school before he did and when he came in I remember standing in the door of his bedroom asking him have you heard what happened to Carl and Vicky? they're missing and he just went ashen he got this just really peculiar look on his face and got really quiet and I asked him what was wrong and he just passed it off. Nothing, you know, nothing. I'm okay. I'm just worried about the girls cause I'm friends with them and I hope nothing's happened. Um, mm-hmm. But judging by his demeanor and the look on his face, he was terribly upset about something to the point I was, yeah. he was disturbed. He was not himself at all. Wow. Yeah. I think he would, he and Vicky were probably, I guess the same age at the time. Yes. So how, how old was Hugh when he started hanging around with older crowd though? Like how old was he then? 14. So when he was 14, he was hanging around with older, like the older crowd. Like how old do you think? Oh, 10, 10 years. That was nothing unreasonable. Um, Cause I've heard uh, stories that have gotten back to me over the years of people. I know that were a good 10 years older than him that would see him at the same parties they were at and would talk to him and cut up with him and, um, so it wasn't uncommon for him to have a, a age range of friends from his age up to people in their mid twenties at that point in his life. Right. Right. And do you think that's when some of his troubles with law enforcement began is when he hang with, when he started hanging with this older crowd? I think so, because I, I don't know what happened exactly to Hugh, but, um, around about the beginning of his freshman year, September, October of 1980, um, it's just like he took a nosedive. Um, he went from being the class president, popular, excellent grades, to skipping classes, getting in trouble, 
running with the wrong crowd. You know, he would get caught like most teenagers do. He would get caught drinking or smoking dope or something like that. And it just, it just seemed like that was so uncharacteristic of him before going into his freshman year. It was a shock to everybody. And within about six months of that happening, uh, when uh, he, he began to change, he, it's almost like he was somebody else. He still mm-hmm. had the happy-go-lucky personality, but it's like he became this other person. It was like he right. was running from something or scared of something, or I, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's just like he was very troubled about something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so Ruth, back, let's see, in January of 2014, there was a published uh, blog, uh, the Potnik News, and I'm sure you've read this article. It was Drugs, the Dixie Mafia, and the Death of Hugh Allen Heflin. Yes. I so, do you recall that article? Yes, I do. Okay. Well, I wanted to read, um, we'll, and we'll go back a little bit and talk about it, but I just wanted to read this segment. Uh, it says, Hugh Allen Heflin told his family just weeks before he died, if I ever have to go back to jail, send me to federal prison. Send me to state prison. Send me anyplace else, but for God's sake, Please do not let them send me back to the Stewart County Jail, because if they do, I'm a dead man. I, so that was, go ahead. I can say that I have heard him make similar comments uh, to family along the mm-hmm. lines. Um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't doubt that someone else heard it also. Right. Right. So... We'll start with like what before we even go into what happened to Hugh Allen in jail that day. Let's start with what happened to him in the summer of 1987. Um, he it says here that, that he was beaten up by a Tennessee state trooper uh, for you know really not doing much. So is it under your impression that the police and law enforcement were always on to Hugh Allen? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, once he got into uh, an initial bit of trouble um, once before, it seemed like they would not leave him alone. They constantly harassed him every chance they got. Mm-hmm. Why, I don't really know, but they did. Right. And then when this happened, when he was beaten up by this Tennessee trooper, I mean, he was beaten pretty bad, from my understanding. I mean, I've had several people tell us that he, you know, someone beat him really bad. Yes, yes. Um, I saw him later that day myself, and yes, it, it, it was a pretty bad beating. As best as I recall, both of his eyes were black. He had bruises all over his face. Um, he had an injury to his foot. I mean, it looked like he had taken a serious beating from somebody. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, it appears it was you know, done by someone, but in the, you know, we read the court record and the court record says that the state trooper and the sheriff's department claim it was all self-inflicted by Hugh Allen. I didn't believe that then. And I don't believe that now. Yeah. That just seems a little bizarre that he could that badly, but that from that beat Allen, a complaint with the TBI and so he talked to the TBI, right? And then he also went to file with the FBI and tried to speak with the FBI and give his statement to them um, is when he passed away. So in between those weeks, 
of him filing with the FBI and the FBI actually sitting to talk with him, he um, met his demise. That's correct. Um, from what I understand, it's been a long time ago, but um, from what I can call, recall from memory, um, Hugh had met with a TBI agent in Clarksville uh, to file a formal complaint about the beating that he uh, said was inflicted by Smothers. And I have no reason to say that that didn't happen. And evidently it was of such a significant nature that the TBI turned the complaint over in turn to the FBI. Um, and they were, as far as I know, in the process of making arrangements to come and interview him uh, when Hugh lost his life. And so let's talk about just a little bit about, and this is going to be a little more sensitive, but how was, let's talk about how Hugh was found. He was found with his hands and feet bound together and a rag was stuffed in his mouth and his feet were actually touching the floor. So this just doesn't come across to me, or I would think most people would not see this as a suicide. I feel like I knew my brother as well as anybody could know him. And it was against everything in his nature to even contemplate suicide. He was a, 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 happy person at that point in his life he had moved away found a job that he loved had uh quit doing drugs and quit drinking and was in the process of totally turning his life around so he had everything to live for there was no reason that he would have made such a choice as to take his own life and i've, I've never believed it was uh he that did it i've always felt uh, that uh just to say it bluntly, that my brother was murdered and it was made to look like a suicide. That's what I personally have always believed. That's what my parents have always believed. And I don't think we're the only ones that believe that. Right. I just think that seems like an awfully hard thing to do. Um, if you have your hands bound, your feet bound, and to have a rag shoved down your throat, I just think that's awfully hard, you know, a hard way to to hang yourself from what i understand um his hands were tied behind his back and then he had a rag in his throat that was so deeply embedded that uh, the coroner was having difficulty removing it to perform the autopsy and mm -hmm. i'm no doctor but my understanding of human anatomy uh, leads me to believe that uh, no single person could do that to themselves. Tie their feet, tie their hands, create a noose, gag themselves, and then inflict self-harm in the manner in which this was described. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I um, In this Putnam news story as well, and we're going to go back to that in a little bit about his um, his actual death. But in the Putnam News story, it talks about an agent that we have discussed before. It talks about Steve Watkins and that um, a little bit about why maybe Hugh was targeted. If he had been targeted, um, it talks a little bit about why he may have been targeted. Yes, that's correct. So it says here that Steve Watkins, you know, owns a Cessna Cherokee um, that he kept in a hangar. And from what I'm understanding here is that, and maybe you can help me with it if you if you know different, um, is that drugs were supposedly being flown in to Dover, and these drugs were being distributed amongst what they were calling patsies, like to different people. 
and then they were after they were being did by these um these patsies were being picked back up and arrested i read that in an article and i have every reason to believe that's true mm-hmm When he went to the FBI, uh, if he was going to tell this whole cycle, this whole ring of events that, or if he was just telling about the beating, the um, state trooper, or both, maybe. I'm not exactly sure. I know he intended to discuss the beating, um, but based on comments that he had made uh, prior. He was scared because he felt like he knew things that put him in danger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he alluded to the fact that he m- might be willing to divulge certain information if it meant he could be protected from the thing he feared the most. And that was going back to the Steer County Jail. Right. Right. And then he never got that opportunity. No. Unfortunately, no. And then after Hugh died, um, there was a post-it note found from the state trooper, um, you know, that's, that's been named in the, in the complaint. Um, and what did this post-it note say? The case against me can be dropped because Heflin is dead. Uh. I think it said the complaint against me can be dropped because he didn't say Hugh Heflin. He didn't say Mr. Heflin. He said Heflin is dead. So, Rue, later on after Hugh Allen passed away, you and your family filed a lawsuit um, against the Stewart County, um, I guess the Stewart County Sheriff's Department, or there were some individuals um, that the the suit was filed against? Yes, it was against uh, Sheriff Hicks. And a couple of other individuals. Okay. Mm-hmm. And to let's talk a little bit about that lawsuit. Okay. Uh, my parents filed suit in federal court under a legal concept called deliberate indifference. And in layman's terms, what deliberate indifference means is that when a person is detained by um, uh, an entity, be it a police department or uh, possibly uh, an involuntary committal into uh, a mental hospital, for example, Uh, when it's a case that a person's not there by their own volition, that they're involuntarily there. The entity detaining them has a legal and moral obligation to provide that individual basic life-saving medical care to keep them alive and well as long as they're in that entity's custody. Mm -hmm. How that relates to my brother is actually quite simple. Um, When my brother was found uh, and the doctor arrived at the scene, the doctor stated that he thought he heard a heartbeat. Um, He directed the EMTs to cut my brother down where they could attempt life-saving resuscitation if necessary. And um, the sheriff, Sheriff Hicks, denied the doctor's request to cut my brother down. He left my brother hanging Mm. so that he could take quote unquote crime scene photos. In short, doing that denied my brother any hope that he had of living. 
because according to sworn testimony from an expert witness out of the University of Alabama, um, the gentleman stated that based on my brother's excellent physical health and uh, physical condition at the time of his death, had my brother been cut down and rendered life-saving medical care, there was a 95% chance my brother would have lived and suffered no long-term mental de uh, deficits due to oxygen deprivation. Mm -hmm. so in short, Sheriff Hicks denying my brother uh, being allowed to be cut down denied my brother his right to life, which is the very con you know, pretext of the whole uh, concept of deliberate indifference. And so my parents took this case forward to federal court. Um, the, they won at the Sixth Circuit level in Nashville. The case was appealed to Cincinnati, Ohio, to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. My parents again won the appellate court's decision. The county, unhappy with the verdict again, then appealed to the United States Supreme Court. The Supreme Court accepted the case, reviewed it, and upon its review, concluded that the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals made the right decision, that they had, in fact, deliberately denied my brother his right to life by failing to cut him down. And as a result, my family won a United States Supreme Court decision, which is almost unheard of in this kind of case. It was the first case to ever make it, to my knowledge, to ever make it to the Supreme Court based on the concept of deliberate indifference. Right. And so um, if anything good could have come out of something so horrible, at least I know that families now that lose a loved one under these circumstances have a piece of legislation that they never had available to them before. And that my brother's death, as heartbreaking as it is, wasn't totally in vain because now families who have seen the same injustice done to their loved ones that my family has seen have a legal precedent they never had before my brother in the case of Heflin versus Stewart County. That, that's pretty amazing. Yes, yes, it is. And you know, the we read that the policymaker of that of not being able to um, cut down Hugh or not to cut down any inmates that were hanging. That policy, the policymaker of that was David Hicks. Yes. And so, do we know if that's changed now? Is at the Stewart County Jail? I honestly have no idea. Yeah. I have to find that out. Yeah, I would. I would hope so. Yes, I certainly would too. So, Rue, this Hugh Allen's death, I mean, raises a lot of questions for I think everybody, especially in Dover. And, you know, it's just really hard to believe that his death was a suicide. But however, it still has always been classified as a suicide. Is there ever a chance that that can be reversed to, you know, a manslaughter or a murder charge? There's always that hope. Right. Because there's no statute of limitations on murder. Mm -hmm. and that's right. why I'm here talking to you today you know um, I grew up in Big Rock I am a native of Stewart County my roots run very deep there and though I've moved away I'll always hold that community and the county close to my heart because that's where my people are from but 
you know, my family's lost so much with all this. I was a twin. My twin was stillborn. My father passed away in 1987, or excuse me, 1998, excuse me, from cancer. Um, my mom now has dementia, and unfortunately, she's not in a place to to ever know the truth of what happened to my brother. And um, it breaks my heart because um, I know up until the day my father passed away, he was living for the day that he could have that death certificate overturned and have it declared as a murder because that's what he left this earth thinking that it was, you know, mm. um, I'll never know what it means to have an adult relationship with my brother. I was 16 when he left us, you know, I would love to know what it's like to sit there and talk to him as middle-aged adults now, you know, right. um, I'll never know what it's like to be a blood aunt to nieces and nephews. Um, and the loss honestly gets harder as time goes by. It's, it doesn't get easier uh, because as I get older, uh, th- just the sheer profoundness, if you will, of the loss is overwhelming sometimes um, because as a 16 year old, I didn't, I, I felt the loss, but as an almost 50 year old, I, I see it now with a totally different set of eyes, if, if you will. Um, you know, I realize it my whole family's life was changed forever the day that we lost you. Um, I just didn't realize how much until this coming back out, you know, in the light of day again, and people started talking about my brother's case again. Um, right. You know, because um, it's been 33 years now. It's hard to believe that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think it's time that, that Hugh Allen got justice just as much as I believe Carla and Vicky deserve justice, you know, um, I know there's somebody out there that has information that they probably haven't brought forward because they're flat out scared. And and Lord knows growing up in that community and seeing what my family went through, I of all people can absolutely understand why they're scared. But, you know, he was somebody's son, brother, nephew, and friend. But most of all, he was loved by an awful lot of people. And if this were to happen to someone that you loved or anybody else for that matter, we would all want the truth. I mean, that that's, that's something I believe every human being that has any sort of heart and compassion at all wants to know is the truth, you know, no matter how ugly and awful it may be to be told, you know, uh, I, it's the reason I'm here today is because I feel like that his family, friends, and the many people that loved him deserve to know the truth. And Hugh Allen deserves to finally be able to rest in peace. And he's never gotten that because for all these years, too many people have assumed that he took his own life. And if I thought that were true, believe me, this whole situation would have been a whole lot easier to live with. But it's the knowing in your heart and soul that he didn't do this by choice, that he had a life full of promise yet to leave and somebody snuffed that out for their own selfish reasons. That's that's hard to live with. You know, it's hard to let go of. So, yeah, no, I, I, and I hope that anybody that's listening that has any information will share that with us or will share it with someone because you're right. It's been too long. Um, 33 years is way too long and it's definitely time for someone to speak up. But um, I, I wanted to ask you one more thing before we close. If, if you was, life was taken, um, why do you think someone wanted to take his life? Just, I mean, to make him be quiet about 
Um, maybe he did know something about Carla and Vicky, or maybe it was about the drug ring we talked about. Or what do you think? I personally, I can't speak for anybody but, but Rue. I personally think he knew something. I think he knew things that were so damaging to the good old boys network that existed and still exists to a certain extent in Stewart County. And he was a liability they couldn't afford. I, I think personally, based on all these years that have gone by and thinking about it after all these years, I, I think that there is a relationship between what happened to Carla and Vicky and what happened to my brother. At first, I didn't didn't see it, didn't really think so. But the more that I've learned through this wonderful podcast that y'all are doing, the more I have grown to believe that, yes, they're related. Probably more deeply than even I suspect. And I think that all of that had a part to play and why they chose to let my brother hang there and die that day rather than save him. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Ruth, thank you so much for coming on. And I hope that something can come from this and someone can come forward with answers, but we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. Thank you for having me. Amelia, I'm really excited to talk to you today about this Hugh Allen Heflin case. I thought that um, Rue and your interview was a really informative overview of the case against Hugh Allen Heflin. And um, I'm just, you know, I'm just sure that our listeners are wondering, why are we talking about Hugh Allen Heflin at Margaret Lakes? Right. And you're right. Rue was very informative. And, you know, I did talk to um, a lot of Hugh Allen's friends as well. And, you know, they all have the same things to say about him that, you know, he had never met a stranger. He was a life of a party and, you know, just what an incredibly nice guy he was. Yeah. So how, you know, for the listeners and everyone um, who's been tuning in at Murder at Land Between the Lakes, how do we see the Hugh Allen Heflin case possibly being related to Carla and Vicki? Well, we had heard from another source um, that reached out to us and told us that at some point between the girls disappearing and when the girls were found by hikers, that there is a possibility the perpetrator took Hugh Allen Heflin along with a couple of other people down to the crime scene to see the bodies. So I don't know, um, you know, exactly when that was, but it was within that three week time frame. So there's a possibility Hugh Allen saw the girls dead. And as we noted with Rue, he knew the girls and he was friends with Vicky. Mm-hmm. So if that is true, you can only imagine how deeply disturbing that could have been. And Rue also did say in our interview um, that he changed um, after September, October of 1980. So could that have been the reason he changed? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good question. Also, I guess, why would anyone ever take someone to a crime scene 
were was somebody trying to to show off that they were a part of this horrific mm-hmm. murder or were they possibly using that to to threaten Hugh Allen and others as kind of this could happen to you type message yeah you wonder right was that a message yeah that's that's really interesting especially also both of these things happening in Stewart County um I don't know, just the, the connections are definitely, definitely eerie. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, and I wanted to tell you exactly why Hugh was jailed that day. Um, we never really talked about that. So Hugh had come home. Um, he had been away and he was coming home for a court date for another unrelated charge. And he had called he had called to see if he could have the date changed and the judge honored that and he moved the court date for him but the morning of the the day that he was originally scheduled to go and the day that he died um police officers showed up on the front porch at like seven eight o'clock that morning and to take you Allen away for not appearing in court so when they took him out he ran because he was terrified and he had already told the family, do not let me go back to Stewart County jail. So when they came to pick him up that day, he knew, he just knew that that was going to be a bad day for him. That's, that's so sad. Now, can we, can we talk a little bit about how Hugh Allen's, Hugh Allen Heflin's body was found um, hanging in the jail cell and whether it's even possible to be a suicide. That's, I think that's a question for everybody like would like to have answered how that could still be even considered a suicide. I don't know. I mean, you have your hands bound behind your back, your feet bound, a gag stuck so far down your throat. Um, and like Ruth said as well, your body would naturally, your gag reflexes would kick in. I mean, I don't even know if it's possible to actually gag yourself in that way. Yeah. And his feet were touching the floor, correct? Yes. I don't know like how firmly they were on the ground, but his, I think at least his toes were touching the ground. So he wasn't, you know, he didn't hang from a high, you know, from a high place. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm imagining that it was on like the door or like a, a, a bar of a cell. I think it was the shower head. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was a shower head. Okay. So he was possibly just hanging there with his feet on the floor, his hand and his hands and his feet tied behind his back and a gag in his mouth. It just seems really almost physically impossible to do all of that to yourself and then hang yourself. The tying of the hands, especially (laughs) seems difficult to me to be able to, to pull that off. But let's say hypothetically that this potentially was not a suicide, right? Mm -hmm. Who possibly could have done anything to him? He was in a jail cell. Well, I think you're very limited to who it could have been, right? You're only in the jail cell with, it's a small jail, mind you as well. So um, you're in the jail cell with the inmates uh, law enforcement, and I don't know, the, the jailer, I, those are the only people there. So I guess the question is, if he did not hang himself, 
who is responsible for hanging Hugh Allen Heflin and who ordered it if it was someone was made to do it. It's true. I mean, the, in my mind, the people that would have had access to him would have been either inmates or law enforcement. Correct. Right. Because nobody else would have had access to that secure area that I'm, that I'm aware of. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it was, it was very small. I've seen pictures of it. It was a small jail cell. It was a small jail. So there mm-hmm. wasn't that many people there. But, you know, and, and talking about that, when, you know, we talked about the court case, uh, you talked about the court case when you, you know, cited um, the entire case, there was an inmate who testified. And when he was on the stand, he was shaking so hard that his leg was bumping against the microphone. And to the point where the judge had to stop it and say, he said to him, he said, why are you so scared? And he said, because if I talk, I'm going to end up just like my friend, Hugh Allen. And with that, the judge dismissed the jury and called up both attorneys for a talk. And after, you know, not really sure what was said during that conversation, but then he said, if anything happens to this witness after his testimony, there will be a lot of questions raised. Hmm. So that makes me think that maybe there was somebody involved in, in helping to execute this plan. Yeah. And you know, there's something else that, you know, we talked about a little bit, Lainey, why was in that court case, why was it called a crime scene? (laughs) Yeah, that's um, a great question. Why, why would law enforcement handle that as a crime scene when he was being detained he hasn't been to trial he has all of his rights um and evidently if they thought it was a suicide when they came across it why wouldn't they have immediately tried to resuscitate him versus treat it as a crime scene so i don't know that's it's a great question yeah, you know, Sheriff Hicks said he took pictures and secured the crime scene. Those were the exact words in the document. So that's very puzzling as to, again, I, yeah, I didn't know a suicide was considered a actual crime scene. I didn't know crime that scene. that would be that. Right. Huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that is, um, it's very puzzling, the whole, the whole situation. And... I, I really loved your interview with Rue and how she has said that this case hopefully can have a positive impact on others moving forward. Um, that's well, just, that, um, yeah, that, I was sorry. Yeah. Well, the idea that this case went to the Supreme court and I think it was deliberate indifference. Yep. So this is a Supreme Court case that's, you know, it's like I think you looked it up, Lainey. It's been cited several times in many cases. Yeah, like over 20 times. Wow. That's really that's really impressive. And it's really good that, like, like Ruth said, it can help other families that aren't getting, that don't get justice. 
exactly. I, I did want to tell you one other thing, Lainey, um, a call we received um, after we put out the picture of Hugh Allen and the announcement of the episode soon to come. Um, someone called and told me that one day um, before before Hugh Allen was beaten, we didn't even really talk about that, when he was beaten by the cop, by the state trooper, um, before that even happened, um, that this person went into the house of the Heflins, and the mom and his mom and dad were sitting at the table, Hugh was at the table, and another friend was at the table, along with the DEA. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know if the DEA was there because he was in some kind of trouble or could he have possibly been working with the DEA and had he been working with the DEA that raises a lot of questions as to why he was beaten and why he, why he is now no longer with us. Yeah. And couple that with, uh, obviously he was working with the FBI as well. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. it definitely makes it even more suspicious, I think, that it was ruled a suicide versus mm-hmm. a homicide. Yeah, and he never got to take that meeting with the FBI, which is really sad for him. He definitely had something to tell the FBI. Um, rather, it was about the you know supposed drug ring. Rather, it was about the beating he took from the state trooper. I don't know, but I just know most hardcore criminals don't usually call the FBI or go to the DEA. So I really believe Hugh Allen was set to do some good and he was set to really tell what was happening in Dover at the time. Yeah, no, I agree with you. All the, all the information that we have received definitely indicates that that could be a strong possibility. Right. Yeah. Well, we hope we hear from, you know, more people and, and if anybody else knows anything about how Hugh Allen is possibly tied to Carla and Vicky's case, um, we would love to hear from you. Yeah. Any details, even if it's just really more information around who Hugh Allen was and any interactions that you had with him just so we can understand him even better as a person. That would be welcome. Okay. Well, that's the story of the death of Hugh Allen Heflin. It's a pretty complicated one and I'm sure um, we're going to get a lot of feedback. So we may have a follow-up as well. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Murder at Land Between the Lakes. This is an Anchor production, hosted and edited by Lainey Sullivan and Amelia Courtney at Discrepancy Podcast.